Warning, warning. Two idiots are reading the SCP files over the intercom. Get out of there, you damn kids! Previously, I'm discovering SCP. Dardell finally unlocked his diamond form after training with Baggerman. But it was too late, <laughs> as Tanhini had already breached the final dressing place of the Grendering Spirits. Can Darrell reach the graves in time to stop Tanhini from unlocking his next stage? Will the loop begin again? <laughs> Who knows? How are you enjoying your new diamond form, by the way? Um, it's really shiny and bright. Um, you can do anything just wait till I become can. evil. When I become evil, it'll be my blood diamond form. <laughs> that's that's how you'll know I'm bad, and it'll turn red. Um, welcome back, guys. To DSCP. Now I know what you're wondering. Hey, what news is there on the SCP? Website? I'm wondering too. This is actually how I get my news at this point. <laughs> I am the news anchor. Oh my god, it stayed logged in on the wiki. Oh my god, there's a new age. <laughs> we finally made it. Okay, so, November f Oh wait, there's no new news since last time. The last news was from November 4th. Uh, um... Something had to have happened, right? Uh, surely. Um... Okay, well, uh, Tanhoney, how uh, many articles are there today? <laughs> uh, there are one, two, three articles. Are you excited? Three. Surely they're uh, not going to read more antimimetics. <laughs> oh wait, there is one piece of news, but I can't read it. One piece news? Too late by the time. Tell me. No, uh, it'll be too New late by the time it comes out. There, there's a community survey on the wiki, but it closes it. on the first of December, which is <laughs> tell us what you think's going to win, and we can see. <laughs> Wait, you... what? What is the survey? Let me I click don't know. it. You're the news, oh, you tell me. It takes 10 to 15 minutes. I don't have enough time to fill this it guy. out. This guy. Uh, it's probably just like stuff about you. Like how old are you? What's what your background? They're trying to find something about me. I, I, it's a community survey. I assume it's like a demographic thing, like a census. I see. I don't know. You're fucking, you've been here 11 years now. You tell me. You think I know what yeah. goes on here? <laughs> You, you do. Weren't you a mod at one point? No. <laughs> uh, I thought you were like a junior mod. Yeah, but I never did that. Yeah. That's why I'm not Just a like real life. Anymore. And where has that gotten you, Tanhoney? That last I'm just holding you. Oh, sorry. I got a little sorry, bit too serious. <laughs> <laughs> he went to your body. My tanity cells have already entered your body. Sorry, but sorry. you're in for the most torturous end. Shut up. <laughs> um, you can uh, see the cells, they got little tiny faces. The only news is we're looking for new games to play on the server, and by we, I mean me. So if you guys have any ideas... Send your suggestions in, in the comments, and we'll see. But before we get into this, I want to do a comment, part of the comment reading early, because I have a comment that I feel we must, we must consider from a traitor, I would say. Okay, who is it and what is it and what episode? Let me get to it, let me get to it, let me get to it. It's from HU4D, the traitor. Oh, I know this comment you're talking about. He's not a traitor, he's just a <laughs> He man. criticized me. He said, what did he say about you? HU4D says, I have a formal proposition for Tanhini and Dornail. The post-Saturday morning record two hours later regime needs to come to an end. Would you guys be willing to record two episodes next week or something? So that way we're on a backlog, and videos still come out in the usual time, but our stink bugs have more time to comment. 
I typically watch Saturday night when I do Uber, so I never get to comment. Alright. The is behind you. Hey, I, I stop you with a hand on your head. <laughs> well, you like, catch my fist as I'm about to like him. <laughs> yeah, I'll like, hold him off while I against me. Done. I have to stand for something, or else what will I fall <laughs> like, for? Like, like, hold me back. Like, Go on, get out of here. I'll stop you, Tyrannoni. <laughs> no, but let me answer you, HG4D. First of all, I respect your hustle with Uber. Uh, I admire someone who works hard to make ends meet. So this is some fucking respect. PR statement. <laughs> um, no, no, I just like I, I, I get that it's tough. Um, but let me, let me, let me explain. I, I, my concern is that if we record two next week, how does this solve the issue? I would like you to. I would like you to challenge. I would like you to, to try a challenge. I want you to DM Tanhony and see if he actually answers. Okay. So there is only about three to four hours twice a week when Tanhony is summonable in this world um from 2 p.m my time to about 5 p.m my time uh so there's a very limited amount we can record and that's assuming that something doesn't come up like a family matter for one of us or whatnot so i am willing to record more however you have to keep in mind in the Tanhony dimension that's late at night for him yeah so you, so you may ask, well, why don't you record earlier in the day? You see, if I DM Tanhony before 2 p.m., there will not be an answer because he's still in the Tanhony dimension, recovering his energy. <laughs> I'm going to So there is simply not enough time for us to record twice in a weekend. Um, we could maybe swap the Sunday and Saturday, but we'd have to go over that with the Havoc Moon group and see how that would fit in the schedule. But that's, that's the best we could do for you is give you one more day. Um, but we'll have to talk about that first. That wouldn't be immediate. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Tim, honey? Um, I don't know. <laughs> What'd you say? I don't know. Um, we could do that, I guess. Okay. Is it that much and just of an so issue, you know, And just so you know, that wasn't me shit-talking you. I'm just saying, there's a, you have a very finite amount of time I can get a hold of you, so we can't record, like, two podcasts in one day. It's, it's just difficult. not feasible. It is hard. Until Tanhony moves to America, or until he captures me and brings me to the UK, bad end, um, that's just the way things are. But one day, I do believe that he can be saved and brought to a good country, and then things might be different. But until then. Also, by good country, I don't mean America. I mean uh, Canada. The paradise we are yet to make. <laughs> the paradise we have yet to make, eh? <laughs> the Tanhony <Tanhony's> kingdom. <laughs> It's a continent between the U.S. and, and Britain. <laughs> it's like on, on a boat to the U.S. And like, I guess it's about time it starts rising out the ocean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just an immense world. tower looming over the sky. Boats crash against its wake. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, these but humans yeah. could not withstand being so close to my seat of power. It seems their cells <laughs> were vaporized. <laughs> I would love to live on the Tanhony continent. I think it would be fun. And only the strong would make it. My top ten strongest Tanhonites. <laughs> Alright. Um, what if what if God appeared on Earth for the rapture, right? And he was like, this had nothing to do with your sin or how you lived your life. It's a battle royale and the last ten alive get to come to heaven. New manga. <laughs> it <laughs> sounds like some fucking like light novels. Yeah. It really does. Uh, okay. But anyway, enough light novels. We're like almost yeah. eight minutes in now. It's time to read. How many articles do we, we have? We got three. I don't. I doubt we'll do all three, but we've got at least three. All right, all right. How much is left in the anti-memetic series? There's still a bit left. 
Okay. Because I had a proposal for you, but I'll bring it up at the end of the okay. podcast. It's just only for We're going to get married, guys. Well, oh, we're not getting married. Well, there we go. Here's the first one we're looking at. It is Case Hates Red by Quantum. By Quantum. Let's I go. hate red. My name is Case. Satan Red, if you believe it. My name is Case. I hate red. <laughs> I have a caveman. Why don't you read Caveman? Okay. If Adam Wheeler gave it some thought, or if someone were to prompt him the right questions, he could put words around the fact that his existence doesn't bring him any satisfaction. He would discover, on introspection, that he's nowhere close, actually, to happy, and that there is something vast and significant missing from his life, don't I know it. But he doesn't give it any thought. There's a void between him and those questions. Objectively, academically, his life is great. As a professional violinist, he does what he loves the most for a living. He has talent, recognition, challenge, variety, applause, and moderate wealth. What is there to question? Why shouldn't he love it? Because we're humans, and we always want more. Because he forgot his wifey. Oh, that too. During slower moments, there's a grey worry in the back of his mind. It's there in the minutes right after he wakes up in the morning, before he makes it to the shower. It's there in the dead times backstage when he can't use his phone, and there's nothing to do but wait to go on. It perturbs him from time to time, but he seems to exist in a kind of long shadow, cast by a vast class of thoughts which he is unable to think. But the rest of the time, on a day-to-day basis, his calendar is as busy as his manager can make it. He performs, solo and in orchestras, he records, he composes and teaches. Every week is a different challenge. He keeps busy, and the feeling goes away if he's busy. On the morning of the day that <coughs> arrives, while he is brushing his teeth, a tiny, tiny black slug falls out the corner of his eye into the hotel sink. <coughs> he scratches that eye while drooling foam from his toothbrush. He takes a closer look himself in the mirror. Yup, there's another fatter one growing in there, his tail protruding from his tear ducts. I can do without this, he mutters to himself. He spits, rinses, and then takes out a pair of tweezers from his wash kits. Carefully, he nips the tiny, waving end of the slug and tugs it out. It's no more painful than extracting a nostril hair. He, drop- he drops it in the sink with its friend and washes them both away, along with the froth of toothpaste. He stares at the plug hole for a long moment. It's like he's forgetting something. He can't bring it to mind. He shakes his head and goes to get dressed. Daily routine of a successful violinist. <laughs> Popcorn. <laughs> Are you joking right now? Yeah. I just read almost 12 yeah, pages I'll, of Eighth Space. I'm joking, of course. Yeah, you better I be I was joking. actually trying it, but... <laughs> I got a little violent, I'm sorry. I'll read one paragraph, but then you have no, to... No, I'll, okay? I'll save up. I'm going to charge up how much you have to read. Okay, do it. Wheeler has been on tour with the New England Symphony Orchestra for nearly a month. What about old England? What's going on here? They're at the final venue, and it's their final There's night. only one important England, and it's not on your continent. <laughs> and Wheeler has mixed feelings. Touring, for him, is an opportunity to explore a kind of liminal lifestyle, where he can suspend as a lot of worldly concerns and just exist as a being who wakes, travels, performs, and sleeps. Actually, you have a point. England used to be there. That was the colonies, but then it re- retreated. So shouldn't it be old England? I guess. But as novel as the experience is on paper, four weeks of it is grueling. By this stage in the tour, even the most naturally cheerful members of the orchestra have begun to show frayed nerves, and the program has become stale and repetitious. It's long past time for something else. Last night, his manager left messages about plans for upcoming weeks. It's probably time he paid attention to those. Morning rehearsal starts at 11. Wheeler takes a taxi from the hotel to the venue. 
bringing his tuxedo and his violin with him. His violin is an heirloom, more than a hundred years old, and while it's touring, you know, it never leaves his sights. His tuxedo is just a tuxedo. The concert hall is as close to the centre of the city as it gets, at the heart of a rat's nest of busy roads, which means the taxi journey is a slog, even setting out after rush hour. At the stage door, the place is in chaos, but it's only the typical pre-show chaos which Wheeler has spent much of his professional life navigating. He finishes a quick cigarette outside before joining the bustling flow of technicians, performers, and administrative staff. He finds his way to his dressing room, changes, unpacks his violin, and tunes it. He flicks through tonight's music, more out of boredom than the need to refresh his memory. He has the whole programme memorised. With some minutes to kill, he checks the headlines on his phone. Yet again, something dreadful and new which he doesn't understand is going viral. The taste that is you paint a black vertical rectangle on the wall, or on a mirror, or over the top of a picture, and then you chant something. Wheeler can't quite pick out the words of the chants, they're in a language he's not familiar with. He's no singer, but he's performed pieces with lyrics in Latin, German, Greek, French, whereas this language has a bizarre manufactured sense to it, as if it were simply English with the vowels and consonants all switched around. And with a big black box there as described. Rehearsal goes really. What kind of fad is that? It sounds like a foundation cover up fad, like some psyop shit. Rehearsal goes reasonably. Wheeler Longer goes swore that he would never coast through performance and plays decently well. But it seems to him as if a lot of the orchestra is distracted. Some cues get missed. He makes meaningful eye contact with the conductor a couple of times and they share a frustrated look. Then they break for dinner late in the afternoon and the conductor, whose name is Lron, privately remarks to him, Her eyes need fixing. Willow doesn't wholly follow. He rubs his own eye with a finger, reflexively. The memory of the morning tries to punch through, but fails. You mean laser surgery? Lujan responds with a few incomprehensible syllables and stalks away. Now, Popcorn. <laughs> the auditorium opens and the seats fill. As ever, there's a brief, grey dead time while Wheeler waits for all the machinery of the performance to spin up. The anxious feeling is stronger than usual today. It grips him an uncharacteristic urge to run away. Sure, he thinks. I could just junk my career right now, pack it in and make for the stage door. Maybe the taxi will still be there. But he pushes through it. It's just a juvenile fantasy. It's been far too long a tour. One more show and it's over. And finally it's time, and he's out there, under the spot in his element. The first piece of the night is Shostakovich. Shostakovich. Shostak... I, I, I don't know. It's the tick hasn't appeared on the page. It means you haven't pronounced it correctly yet. Yeah. <laughs> Green tick will appear when you do it. <laughs> Shostakovich. <Ding>. Its, first... <laughs> its first movement is a sedit. Haunting, almost melodramatic nocturne. But before too long, the concerto changes gear and becomes energetic, discordant, feral. It's lengthy, too. A real workout. And much of it is brutally difficult to execute. He's on form tonight, close to flawless. And his audience, which he cannot see or hear, seems wrapped. Four-fifths of the way through the piece, a kind of spell breaks. Something changes in the atmosphere of the auditorium. The temperature in the huge room seems to rise by several degrees. More concerningly, and noticeably, the music behind Wheeler begins to trail off. The conductor stops, too. Perplexed, Wheeler continues to play for a moment or two, keeping to his own internal time. But after another moment, it becomes clear that something is wrong. Something with which everybody can see but him. He steals a glance up from his instrument and finds that Lujan is staring at him. In fact, every musician in the orchestra is staring at him, all of them wearing the same expression of stony, barely contained ang- They've been replaced. 
The orchestra is gone, all seventy of them. The things which have replaced them are not human but alien, ill-proportioned pillars of pinkish-brownish flesh. Each has, at its top, a heavy protuberance studded with goopy biological sensors and rubbery openings and sprouting from the very cap, lengths of various kinds of vile, off-colored moss. They are draped in black and white fabrics, weirdly cut to either conceal or highlight their blobby, inconsistent body structures. Wheeler reels with fright. He almost falls off the front of the stage. His stomach convulses and he wants to vomit, but a frantic fragment of his brain hasn't panicked yet and tells him, wait, nothing's changed. That's what humans have always looked like, right? What's happening? What's wrong? He glances, petrified out into the darkness of the audience. The silent energy radiating off them has changed. They've been replaced too, he knows, and they know he hasn't. That's what's wrong. Punching his vial into his chest. This is what a social anxiety person thinks is going to happen when they get on the bus. (laughs) Clutching his vial into his chest, Wheeler stumbles across the stage, past the conductor, towards the wing. As he does, the musicians rise slowly from their seats, letting their own musical instruments drop to one side or the other. Wheeler trips over cellist's music stand, recovers. The conductor is following him, with the other musicians close behind. Wheeler reaches the wing. There's a pair of stagehands there waiting for him. They have the same placid, angry expressions as everybody else, and the same set jaws. Wheeler stops and turns back. His heart feels like it's going to take off. Lujan, or rather the biped which used to be Lujan, walks right up to him. He's a little shorter than Wheeler, but much heavier set. Rooted to the spot, not thinking clearly, Wheeler holds his violin up, as if this will shield him. The conductor takes the instrument from his unresisting hands and breaks its neck underfoot, perfunctorily as if crushing a box for recycling. No, it's an antique. backs off. No! Wheeler backs off, hands raised. He bumps into the disapproving stagehands, who gently and wordlessly try to take hold of his arms. He shakes them off, and is just about able to twist past them. He dives into the warren of corridors backstage, and then he runs like hell. Popcorn. Four floors up, in some remote, poorly-lit corridor, which hasn't seen regular use in years, he finds a bathroom. He goes in and throws up. This makes him feel a lot better. He washes his mouth out and then lights a cigarette, quickly filling out in the tiny space with a haze of smoke. That helps too. The adrenaline has run out and his knees are still wobbling from climbing too many stairs. But it doesn't sound like anybody's closely pursuing him. So in the safe moment, he asks himself a serious question. Did I just have a panic attack? He doesn't know what panic attack feels like. Having put so much distance between himself and the stage, what happened there would feel like a crazed dream, a paranoid hallucination. No, but Lujan broke his violin. That part definitely happened. He remembers it with distressing clarity. His reputation with Lujan has never been much more than tepidly professional, but the man was a professional. To vandalise a precious instrument like that would be unthinkable for him or anybody in the orchestra. There's something wrong with everybody, except him. He flicks his cigarette butt into the toilet. He grips the sink and looks into his reflection. As his eyes slowly force their way back into focus, he realises with some alarm that what he is looking at is not his reflection. The mirror above the sink has been sloppily painted over with a tall, black, dripping rectangle. It's giving off heat. Stirring it is like stirring into an open oven. You can hear a dull, grumbling, mechanical kind of noise coming from behind it, like distant, muffled wood chippers. He exits the bathroom and slams the door and leans against the far wall, watching the door, as if something could very well open it and come after him. There was another one, he suddenly recalls. Another painted block, this one on the wall in his dressing room, right behind his chair, facing the back of his head. He should have seen it in the mirror whenever he was sitting there, but he didn't. And not only that, there was one in his hotel room. It's painted over the picture hanging over his bed. Did the hotel staff paint it? When? Why? Why is he only remembering this now? 
The viral video isn't new. Why did he think it was new? It's been circulating for months. For as long as he can remember. Forever. And in every anywhere he's been on tour, in every city, on windows and billboards, and in small rooms, and liminal spaces, people have been painting these doors. There's a second half to each video. He remembers now. He watched it passively, over and over, and never saw it. Something come comes through. He's been leeching into the background of the world for this whole time, in plain sight, and he never saw it. And it's here now. He's having a psychotic break. No, that's not what's happening. Something is trying to interfere with the way he thinks. The block symbol is jammed into his mind. He can't dislodge it. He can't think about anything else. He looks back along the narrow corridor down which he just came. The darkness at the far end of it is yet another dark, vertical rectangle. He hears the footsteps of a multitude of people coming from that direction. Not running, just walking briskly enough to hurry him. He needs to get out of the building. Get help. The stage door. Popcorn. He takes a confused zigzag route back down to street level. There's nobody in his way, and the stage door itself is unattended. He cracks it open. Night has fallen since the performance began. There's a minor road right outside, behind the concert hall building. A yellow-lit cul-de-sac with a loading bay and some unintended trucks. There's a major road adjoining the minor road, rammed with stationary traffic. Some of the vehicles are indeed taxis, but all of them are unoccupied and most of their doors left open. There are colossally tall, darkened figures stalking down the streets, so dark and slender that Wheeler actually fails to notice them. There is screaming, a grotesque, awful screaming, coming from many human mouths, coming from somewhere down the main road. But that's the only way he can go. It's everywhere, says his last sane splinter. Not just the concert hall, it's everyone. As he creeps towards the main road, someone, another occupied former human, pokes their head around the corner, then calls to others in the strange language, pointing him out. Wheeler stops at his tracks. In another moment, ten or eleven non-people are advancing on him from the road. Two of them are carrying something with them. A limp, badly broken human, a normal human, Wheeler realizes with some shock, like him. The victim's heavy winter coat is torn open, and his inner clothes are saturated scarlet. When the non-people carrying him catch sight of Wheeler, they toss the man violently aside into the street, where he lands in a pile against a car wheel. He grunts with pain as he lands, face down, and once he comes to rest, he takes a deep breath and lets out an inhuman, traumatized cry. But he doesn't try to move again. The non-people ignore him. Behind him, Wheeler hears the stage door swing open again. He doesn't dare glance back. This can't happen, says that last splinter. This is possible, yes. Real things exist which can do this to the world, but it doesn't happen. There's someone whose job it is to protect us from this. We're supposed to be protected. Someone stops it from happening. Someone steps in at the last minute. But the last minute was a year ago, and she died. Marion. Oh, God. Wait, Marion's dead? Did I miss something? It happened at the end of the initial antiomatic series. What? She blew up the antiomatic bomb. Remember? Oh, right! It's all out of order! No! Marion! Help! He says to nobody. A feeling of weightlessness rises up in his stomach. Gravity seems to upend and pitch him forward into the waiting arms of the non-people. They restrain him. They spend some time debating what to correct first, his eyes or his fingers. Right up until it starts, he's thinking, hoping, maybe it won't be as bad as all that. Uh, and then there's a big black box. Then when you click it, it turns white. Is there anything hidden in the code? There is not, page? no. So is this like bad end? It seems to be bad end, yes. How can right, you get I'll give it an upvote. I'll give it a 13 out of 10. As usual, it's good, but bad end? This can't be how it ends. Well, there's more chapters, obviously. <laughs> I know, but, like, this is the future. It's so out of order. It, my brain. 
Like, this is how it ends. So there's no happy end, sad. How do you feel about it? Um, I think this is wonderful. This is what happens when Tanithi arrives. This is this is what the good world looks like. <laughs> That's wrong. Uh, Don't you enjoy the Tanithi Towers? This is what you so wanted, next, right? Is next Ara Orun? Yeah. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of redacteds. Let's get into uh, it. Series 1 be like, am I right? <laughs> but it is. They wrestle him to the ground and pin his arm out flat, forcing his fist open to give access to his left index finger. The dread idea is beating on the door of his mind, demanding to be let in. It's wrong. The shape of it is awful. It's too big and slick with poison. And he knows if he lets it in, it'll swamp everything he is, filling his home up with sludge and broken glass. He wants him to drown in it, and he knows it will replace everything he is with himself. He knows it's taken the rest of the world already and all the people around him. And he holds out. And he continues to hold out right until one of the people pinning him produces a chisel, overrides everything else. Yes, he says, yes. He throws the door open. The world's ruined. Beautiful things and smash them all, cover them with filth. Find delightful people and disfigure. We who are drowning and driven by it who radiates. They who number in the billions and are for the engine in the centre of the city. Where people can fed in and the door locked, irreversible, intact and watching. This last splinter of Adam Wheeler starts to work against that which it knows to be wrong. A ray up there, a narrow yellowing nourishing sunbeam. He follows it, over the top of the walls, and out of the city, away from the core. A kind of thread unravels behind him, an infestation. A black slug drops from his tear sluts, deer ducts, falls to the asphalt and shrivels. Damn. He regains con- he read that really well. <laughs> it had a good start, start and stop to it. Thank you. He, re- he gains consciousness after I read so much of my popcorn after that. I read so many paragraphs. <laughs> Ooh, I really worked hard there. He regains consciousness on a hard, scrubbed floor in a wide, cool corridor. He's lying against one wall of the corridor, as if tossed there like a ragdoll. With his back to the wall, his right arm stretched out, clenched into such a tight fist that his finger joints are hurting. He releases the fist, gasping. Disoriented, arching, he rolls and plants his other hand on the floor. Um, it- Arching? Aching, sorry. He rolls and plants. Guys, uh, I'm taking away his author card. Hey yo, my name is Tantonio. <laughs> sorry, I was amused. I didn't even know if that was a real laugh. I, I don't even know who you are anymore. You're starting to see the real me. He rolls and plants his other hand on the floor, and it's then that he discovers what's happened to that hand. He reacts as he must. He clutches the stumps where his first two fingers were and screams and cries hopelessly at the echoing building. Nobody answers him. Oh yeah, wasn't there an anti-memetic thing that was like just fingers? No, yeah. Well, it was like absorbed fingers and stuff. Yeah, and now he's missing two fingers. <laughs> it's dramatic. The last thing he remembers, he was playing Shostakovich. He was flying through it, unimpeded. In his mind, he can hear what he was playing, note perfect, right until the instant memory cuts off. And he can't think of what comes next. Instead, that last incomplete snippet of music goes around and around in his head, abruptly ending mid-note and slowly fading back in again from a few seconds back, an earworm. He can't jolt himself out of it. He's a stuck record. He can never play again. He tries to make the right shape of his remaining fingers. His hand won't do it. He rubs the eyes of his his good hand. He feels like garbage, hungover, dehydrated. He's missing his shirt and his arms and chest are almost grey with muck. He can never play again. He sits there, huddled, for a long while, being small and unhappy and lost. He knows he's going to have to move eventually. He's working his way up to it. 
I'm going to be interrupted in a moment. I was predicted it with my eye of the future. He looks up to the corridor, eyes gradually recovering. He can see all right without his glasses, so long as he doesn't have to do much reading. He's in a school. There are notice boards, banks of lockers, a rainbow mural. The place is deserted and silent. There is a dull red light coming through the windows and the classroom doors on the far side of the corridor, suggesting that the sun is low on that side of the building, rising or setting. He has taught one-off music lessons in one or two schools, but he doesn't recognise this one. With some um on ease, he examines his bad hand. The stumps of his fingers are lumpy and uneven and have healed badly. A mass of scar tissues and scabs, no stitches in sight, as if the digits were removed with great imprecision, hacked off or bitten off. It troubles him that he can't remember. His memory is normally so sharp and clear. He thinks he's thinking clearly, but when he concentrates and tries to access the lost time, something in that gap pushes him back. A fierce red heat. It occurs to him that, although his severed digits have healed very badly, they have healed. They certainly are bleeding, although there's a continual ache. How long would that take? How much time has he lost? What the hell happened? Way down the corridor, away from the classrooms, an office door is standing ajar. In that office, a telephone starts to ring. Hello, Tanhony. Thank you for calling. How may I assist you? Oh, pizza. I want some... <laughs> Actually, I want some popcorn, please. No problem. I'll put it in the microwave for you. The office is pokey and dimly lit, piled high with paperwork. Two small desks, battered office chairs. He finds the ringing phone and picks up. Hello? The voice is synthesized. Female. Mr. Wheeler. Yes, who's this? With a measured tone, the robotic voice replies. Mr. Wheeler, you have been sick for an extended period of time. I will be pleased to answer all of your questions soon. But not now. There is a woman in room W-16. She is dying. I'm not a doctor. I know. There is nothing you can do to save her. Nevertheless, you must go to her. Now. I feel like I'm... I'm not the best person to do that. I'm not in the best place today. It has to be you. There is no one else. Who is she? There is a pause. It's as if the entity on the other end of the phone is unable to choose her words. She is the girl reading this. No, she is significant. Go now, please. She does not have much time. Wheeler is at a loss. He doesn't seem to have the strength to not do what he's told. He doesn't have any other direction to go in. The phone handset is corded, or he'd take it with him. He frets a little about not being able to take it with him. He'll still be here? Yes. He leaves the handset off the hook. He goes back along the silent corridor. He finds the door numbered W-16 and peeks through the safety glass into the orange-red lit classroom, squinting at the sunlight which floods it from the far windows. It's still not clear to him whether it's dusk or early morning. There's nobody in the classroom that he can see. He opens the door and goes in. There are elaborate, colorful biology posters and coursework displays. Desks in disarray, scattered books and felt-tipped pens, brightly colored backpacks. He takes a pace or two up this central aisle, not seeing what he thinks he should be seeing, and turns around and jumps startled. There's a huge chalk sketch on the blackboard, a highly realistic rendering of a woman's head and shoulders. He would swear the board was blank when he walked in. The image is moving. It's as if it's being drawn and erased and redrawn five or ten times per second. The woman looks about his age. Her face is framed with masses of hair, although with the negative color effect of being drawn in white chalk on a black background, it's difficult to tell what color her hair ought to be. The one splash of color comes from the thick, bright blue frames of her glasses. She looks distraught, and she seems to be saying something, and though there is no te sound, there is text written beside her. 
Adam, he says. Yes, she says. I remember everything. And then the words scrub themselves out and become, I can't forget a single minute of it. More lines come out. Each new thing she says erases the old. I know everything he did now. I was blind and he ran rings around me. I made mistake after mistake. He killed everybody I love except for you. After this, her lips stop moving. The last phrase lingers for longer than the others before scrubbing itself blank. Wheeler spends a long moment absorbing the final statement, turning it around, trying to figure out where, if anywhere, it slots into his life. He's never seen this woman before. But is that true? He studies her features and his memory cycles around, and he unearths something deep and significant in his past. A bizarre encounter he, had, he hasn't devoted thought to in what feels like a century. Her! That one time at the hospital, remember? You gouged a chunk out of your foot backstage after a show. You spent half a night in the emergency room, and she was there, and you got talking. God, who was she now, though? Or who was she now? A government agent, or at least in that sphere. She was unreal on a whole other level from me. Tough, skilled, beautiful, sharp like a sapphire. <clears throat> we talked about music, film scores, and the trash which passed for TV sci-fi those days. And David Lynch, it was, well, you don't know that early, but it was promising. But nothing happened. They patched up my foot and we never went anywhere. Did we? Marion, he breathes. He's almost got it. He holds a hand up, fearful, as if motioning for her to stop. No, this can't be. I sent you away because I was trying to save your life. He remembers. It reconnects all at once, the years upon years of inextricable shared life. There's too much energy there. It crashes through him violently. It's like grabbing a frayed electrical line. It's like being shot. He stumbles backwards, disbelieving. He never imagined how much he was missing. No, 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 Marion. And it didn't work. What happened to you? I should have been there. And he ruined the world. And now you have to live in hell. Where are you? Someone said you were dying. I'm already dead. I'm the memory. But now the memory is dying too. He's found his way into heaven and he's ruining it. Like the earth. What do you need? I'll, I'll stop him. I'll help you. I'll do anything I can. I love you. She says nothing. After a moment or two, Wheeler realizes that her image is frozen. He goes up to it and peers at the chalkwork. Hesitantly, with his right hand, he reaches out to the heavy chalk shading of her hair and touches it with one finger. He leaves a dark dot. The chalk dust is real on the board and on his finger. She's just a drawing. She's gone. It's all gone. He blacks out. He regains consciousness on a hard, scrubbed floor at the front of his school classroom. He is lying there as if tossed beneath the blackboard like a rag doll, one arm stretched out along the wall. He rolls over, gasping, and plants his other hand on the floor, and it's then that he discovers what's happened to that hand. Dear God, he says, staring uncomprehending at the mangled stubs. In a strange, abstract way, the loss of his first two fingers just doesn't connect with him. It's as if he woke up already accepting it. What the hell has happened? He compares his left hand with his right, which mercifully is pristine. He flexes them, mirroring the action as best he can. There could be a little nerve damage in his left hand, he'll have to talk to a specialist, but he should be able to wield a bow. I suppose I'm playing left-handed from now on, he says to himself. Good God, how long is it going to take him to get to the same level of proficiency? A good while. He thinks back. The last thing he can remember is playing Shostakovich. He was flying through it, and he was having no trouble. He can almost hear what he was playing, no perfect, right up to the instant the memory abruptly cuts off. But he can't think of what came next. Instead, that final snippet fades in again from a few seconds back, repeats itself right up to the cutoff point, and stops almost with an audible click. It's an earworm. He feels like a stuck record. 
so he does what he always does, hums a different song to displace it. He feels strange. He is hungover, dehydrated. He's missing his shirt, and his arms and chest are almost grey with muck, and he is dying, positively dying for a cigarette. But he feels strangely upbeat, as if he's recovered from a prolonged illness, as if the worst is over. He gets up, eyes gradually recovering. He can see all right without his glasses, as long as he doesn't have to do much reading. The classroom is silent, lit red-orange from a sun which could be rising or setting. There are elaborate, colorful biology posters and coursework displays, tasks in disarray, scattered books and felt-tipped pens, brightly colored backpacks. The blackboard is blank. Wheeler has taught one-off music lessons in one or two schools, but he doesn't immediately recognize this one. Way down the corridor from the classroom, an office door is standing ajar. In that office, a telephone starts to ring. <clears throat> Popcorn. The office is pokey and dimly littered, piled high with paperwork. There are two small desks, each with a beaten-up office chair. Each desk has a phone, one of which is off its hook. Yo. He puts it back, hoping hard for an interesting time. <laughs> My wife is Marion Wheeler, yo. Uh-huh. She told me everything. I'll have you know, she is an SCP agent. Seriously? <laughs> it's the other phone which is ringing though of course hello the voice is synthesized female Mr. Wheeler yes who's this with a measured tone the robotic voice replies before we begin may I ask you a quick question does the name Marion Hutchinson mean anything to you not as such should it the synthesized voice makes it impossible to tell whether the caller is dismayed at this indifferent or relieved no, my name is Ulrich. I am part of an organization called the Foundation. The objective of the Foundation was to prevent what has happened from happening. Wheeler turns around, suddenly afraid, but there is nothing behind him. And what, he asks with some trepidation, has happened? The world's gone to hell, Mr. Wheeler. Well, bad luck there. There is a long pause, long enough that Wheeler wonders to what insane degree he might have understated the situation. Yes, very bad luck. Mr. Wheeler, we need your help. And by we need your help, I mean I need your help. Because there is no one left in the Foundation but me. And I have no one but you. And I am dying. I'm very sorry to hear that, Miss Ulrich, Wheeler says. He finds that he means it. He chooses his next words with some care. What do you need? I need you to find a man named Bartholomew Hughes. Please take a seat. I'll explain everything. Isn't Bartholomew dead? We think so, yeah. Imagine he's like, you're the only one left, and then you hear stomping, and on your left, and 6 HP shows up. <laughs> it's like, heard you could use a friend. Damn it, I think I'd have to work with a feel disgusting human like you. <laughs> oh, I hate humans, but if anyone's gonna destroy them... I'm the only me. one allowed to destroy humanity. <laughs> yeah! Yeah, that 173 is like, come on. It's like, let's make it snappy. in the corner, like, arms, arms folded. Don't mind him. He's got a bad temper. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure, it's like then, he's part of the squad. A Abel pops up and he's like, need uh, a hand. Don't be so noisy. And then Iris pops up with her camera and she's like, click, yep, this goes in my cringe competition. <laughs> 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 Fucking hell. Alright, uh, so is Unthreaded the next it one? Is there, yeah. Do you think we have time for it? I think we might. We're Alright, but you're doing the majority of the reading because my throat is slack. Okay. 
Marion Wheeler used strong monastic medication nearly every day of her life. Among the identity... Oh! Hi. Sorry. Last one's a 13 out of 10. Let me upload okay. it to you. Now continue. Sorry. Among the identity warriors of Mobile Task Force Uwuo, Ara Oren, it was never in doubt that, on the occasion of her death, she would ascend into the new sphere. She would become a Beta Ramjin infomorphic entity, or a type... Five, six, seven. Volitional spiritual apparition or a ghost. That's a type six. Or however she wish to describe her new self. Then she would join the citizens of heaven and continue the Antimerics Division fight from higher ground, likely with fearsome effectiveness. That that was a six, but also I'm completely lost. There's too much bullshit going on. She, I think we read that as if you do like memory ghosts, basically. What? Like, what? They were foundation guys who died and just became information in the system. What's the new sphere? That's like the what thoughts. are the citizens of heaven? The dead, dead people. Oh, <laughs> that is like an organization. But Wheeler died under terrible circumstances. The class Z drug which killed her did more than reinforce her memory. It destroyed her ability to do anything but remember. She ascended, arriving in the new sphere to a hero's welcome. What arrived was an idea form so severely brain damaged that it was barely able to communicate. After she was made as comfortable as possible and initial diagnosis had been made, Sanchez offhandedly described her as a switch, a Swiss watch filled with glue. Ulrich yelled at him for saying it and would have hit him for his callousness. How can she make it into heaven sick, she said. Isn't that just hell? The director apologised in the corporate false way in which he always apologised for anything. How much more does she have to go through, Ulrich said. Who deserves this life? It hurt all of them. Regardless of personal investment. This is in heaven right now? So there's a canonic afterlife? Well, it's not actually It's an afterlife. Okay. Regardless of personal investment in the mission, it was difficult not to care for someone who they had watched and guarded for years. They continued to take care of in the same way they always had, in shifts. Wheeler, dimly aware of her condition, worked against the problem in the instinctive, fierce way she worked almost at every problem. She slowly became more coherent, but never became herself again. Ulrich, on her shifts... So that Wheeler spent most of her existence reliving her vile moments over and over. She would recite what seemed to be like half a conversation with SCP-3125 itself. A conversation which several of Uwuo said they recognised from Operation Cold City. Ideas can be killed. Marion, Ulrich asked her gently. Where is Bart Hughes? He's the only one who can stop this now. We know he's alive or he'd be here with us. Just a hint. Just a clue. Please. She was trying. Ulrich knew that she was trying to say, I don't know, I can't remember anything, something I never knew in the first place. But all she could manage was, with better ideas. Keep pushing her, Sanchez told Ulrich when she reported back to him. At least once per shift. The questioning is causing her considerable distress, Ulrich said. We know she doesn't know anything. It's cruel to keep trying, sir. 3125 is coming, Sanchez has replied. With the quick arm of the anti-mimetics division eliminated, there's nothing left which can stop it. Our real-world investigative capabilities are negligible. Hugh's sister doesn't know anything. This is our sole remaining lead. I know you admire Wheeler more than anyone. She mentored me. She drove me to be the best person I've ever been. She honoured my memory when I died. My own family wouldn't. Ulrich, we are the saints who guard. I will guard her. Sanchez paused. Ulrich's devotion to Wheeler, and the lesser devotion of the others, irked him mildly. He viewed Wheeler as, well, competent enough, but ultimately a failure. 
who's as much of a failure as everybody else in the division, with only the uninteresting distinction of being the last of the failures. But he was vulnerable to the kind of rhetoric Ulrich had just employed. It stoked a kind of fire inside him. Heaven knew he used it in his own communications often enough for exactly the same purpose. All right, he said. The troll in reality is continuing. There's a faint chance we'll find something of substance. Carry on as you were. No questions. SCP-3125 incarnated the following winter. Its first act upon its arrival, or depending on the degree of intelligent agency you ascribe to it, the first side effect of its arrival was the neutralization of the Foundation. In the space of a night, an international staff of tens of thousands disappeared into oblivion, or became amnesiac, or simply dropped brain-dead where they were standing. Foundation sites became hollow, inaccessible dead zones. A few anomalies broke containment in the chaos, a devastating effect. Thousands of others were choked into irrelevant obscurity beneath SCP-321's antimimetic pressure. The world can only end one way, it seemed to be declaring, gouging its statement into the flesh of reality. My world. My way. SCP-3125 had skirmished with W.O. before, but it had always been unclear how much information about them it had retained between skirmishes. In fact, it was unclear, fundamentally speaking, how SCP-3125 fought at all. Its behaviour was inconsistent, unpredictable and frightening. Records of its activities were completely hazardous, discouraging close analysis. In the end, the question proved to be academic. When SCP-3125 arrived, whether it knew W.O. was there or not, it took no special action against it and had no need to. Most of their members' anchors were Foundationers or Foundation-adjacent. With those people's minds blown away in the first strike, the dense web of mutual memory which had held the task force together since its formation were loose. More than half the task force were cast into the void and died, the final real death they had evaded for years. Around dawn, Eastern Standard Time, Sanchez announced that it was no longer possible for this task force to stay together as a single entity. He split the remains of the task force into three. Ulrich and the malformed memory of Wheeler were assigned to the same subteam. Sanchez gave set final instructions to continue to search for Bart Hughes or any kind of ally among the living, be they Foundation or GOI or civilian, but the instructions were confusing and incomplete. It was because Sanchez didn't have an iota of faith in what he was saying. He couldn't see a way to the far side about this. It was about little more than survival now, it was about figuring out terms on which to face death. Ulrich never saw him again. Uh, popcorn. She fled with Wheeler and the others in their little sub-team, across the face of a new sphere which was rapidly becoming uninhabitable. The world was warping around 3125's presence at the core of human thought, like real space around a black hole. It was building things, real physical artifacts in the center of cities. It was extruding them as if from spores, monumental concrete structures into which people were being fed in dizzying numbers. It was difficult to know what was happening inside of the structures. Some of the millions were dying in there, some weren't. All rich didn't look. They found out the ugly way that it was dangerous to look closely. The subteam was steadily running out of anchors. It could have been a systematic purge, but it could just as easily have been simple statistics. Roving physical and psychic anomalies, vast in their own right, enslaved to 3125, were combing the earth, stripping it of objectors, and feeding them into 3125's maw. His top ten All strongest anomalies. <laughs> Allrich's own anchor, a woman who had never known what the Foundation was, but who remembered Allrich with a heavy heart nearly every day, was killed around that time, found in the hills where she'd been hiding and dragged down into the inferno. Allrich wasn't looking. She didn't find out until it was too late. 
She felt the thread of memory come loose and followed it, panicking, past its flapping end and down into physical reality where there was nothing. A collapsed tent, a scuffed-out fire pit where everything important had been piled up and burnt. Who was she? Another W.O. operative had asked her. Ulrich had never spoken about it. I only knew her for two days, Ulrich said, when I was younger. She saved my life, that's all. This was it, she realized. She was a career foundationer, an experienced mobile task force a, operator. A career foundation head. She had... A foundation head. A <laughs> foundation head. She'd gone through unimaginable horrors and stacked them up as experience and kept going. But this Julia's tent in silence and no Julia was the worst thing she had ever seen. Short of hope and resources, the subteam had to split again, this time into pairs. Ulrich stayed with Wheeler, clinging to her like a rock, remembering her and being remembered in turn. A cooperating pair could survive untethered for a little while, but not forever. Um... Words. They found shelter on a distant edge of the new sphere, and a clutch of arcane structures left there millennia earlier by a long-dead human culture. They were followed, though they didn't realize. One night, Wheeler managed to talk. She said, Adam, was the first thing she'd managed to say, which wasn't a direct quote from her own expiring moments. Ulrich was shocked by this. You remember him? The sentence came out agonizingly slow, as if each syllable was like climbing a mountain. I remember everything. Ulrich stared. She knew that class Zemnestics made it possible for the subject to, made it impossible for the subject to forget. She also knew that they could cause long erased memories to reassert themselves, some of them anyway, depending on the mechanism and intensity of the erasure process. She'd hoped that Wheeler's memories of her husband were permanently gone because she knew they ended in a terrible place. I don't know where Adam is, she had to tell Wheeler. It was the truth. Nobody did. W.O. operatives had, with some solemnity, observed the erasure of Adam Wheeler's mind. But, out of respect for Marion's decision and to preserve Adam's safety, they had intentionally diverted their attention during his relocation, destroying their records. He might be alive. I don't know. She didn't know which alternative was worse. Daisy, Wheeler said. Look. She was holding something in her hands. A pitiful, glowing idea form. A thought of someone. It was him. A thread of memory which led right to him. It, it was some kind of miracle. It had to be that Wheeler had picked him out from the livid, insensate mass of victims which now formed 3125's core. He was nearly unrecognizable. He was overrun with 3125. At first glance, it seemed to occupy every nerve in his body. But there was a flickering seed in the back of his mind, a final remnant of what he had once been. It wasn't growing. There was too much pressure. But it was trying to. He was pushing back. Ulrich boggled. She had known that there was something weird and highly rare about the way Adam Wheeler's mind was structured, a kind of thick-skulled resistance to external interference. In fact, she knew that thousands and thousands of people in the world shared that immunity, but that was another way of saying that among the billions, such people were fantastically rare and difficult to locate. Efforts by W.O. to locate them and recruit them as allies had failed. They did not look special or behave radically different from others. There was no signal flare which went up. It was possible that they were all dead. It was conceivable that Adam Wheeler was the only one of them left in the whole world. But he was left. He was alive. I see him, Ulrich said. Wheeler didn't respond. I'll get him out of there, Ulrich said. Her stomach was nodding up at the sheer thought of attempting it. I'll bring him to you. Wheeler didn't respond. Six original coherent words had exhausted her. She was crazed with frustration at how incapable she had become. She felt as if she was pinned beneath a huge lead block of memory. It hurt to think it hurt to exist. Ulrich's ability to interact with the physical universe was extremely limited. Other operatives of W.O. had been able to create full-on poltergeist activity, changing the temperatures of rooms and throwing furniture around, but she was not that kind of specialist. She could do little more than place phone calls and write on walls. Those abilities weren't likely to get Adam Wheeler moving. Simple words were never going to reach him. The man wasn't even truly conscious. 
What Ulrich could do was something the task force dubbed Identity Offense. She could interfere with the internals of living's minds to make things happen. Usually enemies, usually the mental equivalent of blunt force trauma to make them die. But she could act with surgical precision if it was called for. Operating on Adam Wheeler was difficult and time-consuming. His mind was tough and it was continually bathed in 3125's radioactive presence. Ulrich would cut and then wait as Wheeler's mind self-healed, which took days, and then she would cut again. The seedling metaphor served well. The operation reminded her of tending a plant. If nothing else, the whole procedure took real-time weeks. The patience required to keep her hands off for days at a time was nearly inhuman. Wheeler said nothing else in that time. She was conserving energy. It felt as if she had a finite number of words left in her, and speaking each one brought her an inch closer to the end. She had to wait. He'll be here, Ulrich said. Soon. Um, I'm going to do one more paragraph, and then I'm making you yeah, be sure. dressed. Now Ulrich watches from a great abstract distance as Adam Wheeler folds up. Marion Wheeler is dead, finally, truly dead, and Adam Wheeler's mind is breaking apart. It's an awful and incredible thing to watch. Even passing into the Mall of 3125 and back wasn't enough to permanently break him. But this was it, the silver bullet. This was the way to hurt Adam Wheeler in such a way that he would never recover. Present his wife to him, a brain-damaged wreck, just in time for her to die. Ulrich writes on the blackboard, off to one side so as not to mar the image of Marion, and in different handwriting. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Adam, please come back to the phone. I need your help. Adam is prostrate on the floor and becoming catatonic. He doesn't hear it when Ulrich tries, call tries calling the other office phone, the one on the other desk. And she too is dying now. She and Marion were anchoring one another as best they could, but it's the end of the line. She has, perhaps, hours. All right, she says to no one. There is no one else left. She rolls up her figurative sleeves. This will not be too difficult for her. Adam Wheeler's revived memories of his wife shine inside him, and around the edge she can see the faint scar where they were burnt out the first time. She has a better vantage point. to do. A, she can do a cleaner, more permanent job. This will hurt just as much as it did then. I need her, Adam says. He's still face down. Don't take her, please. Ulrich writes, you need to save the world. There's nobody else. Adam doesn't look up, but he says, to hell with the world. It can burn. Popcorn. He recovers a second time. He's fine. What beats game? Eager to get moving. She explains everything she can. Tersely. Just the keywords. The foundation. The antimatics division. The situation. The objective. He absorbs it all surprisingly well. He asks constant follow-up questions, which is always a positive sign. This thread of memory which was sustaining you, he says. Don't I count? I'll remember you. Your memory could be strong enough, she replies, but you just don't know me well enough. Ah, that's regrettable. Ulrich tells him in detail how to find Site 41. It's going to be an immense trek, made significantly longer by Willa's need to avoid urban areas. She describes the antimimetic shroud which obscures Site 41 and most other Foundation sites. A shroud she and the rest of WO found to be totally impenetrable. A shroud which Wheeler, if he prepares himself, may be able to walk straight through. She warns him against the, about the psychotic, hurricane-like anomalies and the violent, roaming aggregations of SCP-3125-occupied non-humans. She describes a few techniques for avoiding their attention. She decides not to voice her private hope that, as a recent escapee from SCP-3125's interior, Wheel will still smell right to them and be able to pass. She doesn't want him becoming overconfident and cautious. She explains basic survival skills. I hike, I camp, Wheeler says. Still, he has never hiked or camped in an occupied foreign world. He has never gone months without electricity and plumbing. They find that they have plenty to talk about. 
You're on the phone for long enough that Adam notices the red sun outside the office window isn't moving. It hasn't written. risen. It hasn't set. Either the world stops turning completely, or the thing hanging out there isn't the sun. Unknown, Ulrich has to tell him. It was a foundation which could answer this question once. It seems like this foundation had the world's better interests at heart, Wheeler says. In heaven, Ulrich laughs weakly. The foundation was never so simple, she says. Miss Ulrich, I sense we're coming to the end of our time together. Yes. The odds stacked against you were tremendous, Wheeler says. But you saved my life, and the odds stacked against me are, well, still appalling. But significantly better, thanks to you. I'll do my level best, and I will remember you even if it doesn't make a difference. Kill this thing, Mr. Wheeler, Ulrich says. When you get the chance, don't hesitate. Aye. He's going to feel like Tanjiro sympathy for the giant, like, <laughs> darkness <laughs> starfish. <laughs> Must have a sad backstory. Aye, Wheeler says. And at the same time, someone behind Ulrich laughs sharply once. She turns. There's a man there, standing with her in the newsphere. A gaunt, younger man with an awful, open-mouthed grin. He's been waiting, silently and excitedly, for an unknowable amount of time for Ulrich to notice him. And now that he does, he gets everything he could possibly want from a reaction. A rush of delectable horror and alarm. Then he cuts her off, killing her instantly, before she can get one syllable of warning to Wheeler. Rip heaven. Wheeler hears nothing. A faint click and then a dial tone. He hangs up. Damn. He did. Wow. Uh, Mr. Tanhoney, I sense we're coming to the end of our time together. Ooh. Uh, I give this a 13 out of 10. I almost teared up a little bit. That's pretty good. Another upvote from me, Quantum. I sense we're hopefully approaching the end of the series, um, but it's been very good. I will buy the book at some point. <laughs> Sold! Um, what are your thoughts, Tan? Uh, I think it's very good. I like it. Does it make your heart stir with emotion? Uh, my, my heart is rumbling. Happy I... shotgun! That's not his voice, what's that? That's Heart Skipper. Heartbreak shotgun! Yeah, Skipper, it's like Adam's fighting off, and, he, and Skipper's like, Hey, need a hand, buddy? I don't Heart think at Fredo. all. <laughs> it can't get me. <laughs> oh my goodness. Alright, um, before we read the comments, I had a question what's your for question? you guys. Oh, before you ask me. And also for Tanhoney, because oh, he has to question. My question is, um, do you, after we finish Anti-Memetics Division, I was thinking, because we've read through That's always a dangerous. lot of key SCPs. I know there's still more key SCPs, but I think we've read through all the ones Tan specifically wants to show me. So how would you feel if we, at least for a while, started just reading through the newest SCPs when we logged on? Yeah. And then just like gave our thoughts on them. Well, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for it. It depends, of course, on what the viewers think. Yeah, you guys tell us. Um, and a simple yes or no will do. You don't have to recommend any articles. We won't read them if you recommend them. It's just as a heads up. Um, but yeah, are you ready for some comments, Tan? Uh, yeah. There aren't too many, so this should be quick. Um, Kenji says, babe, wake up. New DSCP lore just dropped. <laughs> um, I think in regards to the loop system, which I already don't completely remember. I remember perfectly the loops. There's, I don't know, there's not that much to remember the loops. People can come from loop to loop. People can carry on, so there can be multiple versions of one person, where they can take on different identities. Interesting. 
Sobek puts on a pair of comedy glasses while celebrating the year of 2009. Um, you wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you, August? Well, just grabs you by the face and is holding you aloft. Yeah. And he goes, here comes the chopping block. Uh, Orgid Stream says, when will Darnell and Tanhoney come back from the anti-memetic war? Anyways, please, Mr. August, the executioner, I'm just a widow guy. You wouldn't kill a widow guy, would you? August looks to me for approval. I give the thumbs down. Yeah, he fucking chops your head off without even a <laughs> and second. And takes you to the headroom. That's the kind of professional August. You do not die. He takes you to the headroom where all my other critics reside. <laughs> uh, Anomalous Writer says, continuation of anti-memes. Wowza. Uh, password. A.O. August the Executioner. Ditch the axe. Simply edit the people out of existence. A much more efficient means of executing. August! Smile. Get out of there! <laughs> He's like, don't worry, I'm strong enough to take- Anomalous edit, like, halfway through that sentence, so it cuts off because you edited it. <laughs> Anomalous edited his arm off. <laughs> I never even uh, saw him read move. H- <laughs> we read HU4D's comment. Yeah. Uh, Guare SCP says, fuck yeah, you were reading the entirety of 555. When did we say this? They keep saying, like, I said this. Did we say that? Am I only being gaslit? No, they're just gaslighting me. <laughs> trick me into reading it. We're never going to do it. <coughs> JTKC lastly says, I think we've already went to the next loop since you're back to reading SCPs over the intercom. Sick lore recap incoming. After the Foundation broke down the door, you guys escaped to Tanoni Towers, and then there was a raid, and after that, I guess canonically the reason why the lore got blurry after that was because we went into a new loop. Anyways, really excited that you guys get through Antimimetics Division. I'm on holiday right now, and the episode is a real great way to unwind after walking around the whole wet day. I rate this episode a 17 out of 10 on the doornail scale. One bonus star for every day to die. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a reference you wouldn't get, Tan. Have a good week, guys. Smile. Oh, yeah. I don't need to beg for life from Executioner August, because he and I go way back to 97. We helped break the bowler out of Of course, they went, the Tannany, <laughs> they went to the Tannany Towers Academy together. Yeah, there's like a black and white, like, sad music playing in the background. He, they're clasping hands with August. Getting the bowler out of jail. Do you remember the bowler? I do, yeah. He's very powerful. Yeah. Wait, wait, we should make... God strike! We'll have to... For episode 200, we should try and remember all the bit characters we've done and then do a tier list of like how good slash powerful they are compared <laughs> to each other. <laughs> I think that would be fun. Interesting. Um, yeah, is there anything else you want to say to the audience who you love and adore? Um, dodge this. Fire's a blast. <laughs> End the episode there. <laughs> to be continued.